Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law from Australia and around the world in 80 days. Wait, you said that last week. Listeners, do not adjust your set. No, but it still works this week, okay, because think about how Jules Verne's hero, Phileas Fogg, got around the world in those 80 days. Yeah, mostly by boat, with a few days on the train. Yeah, what about the balloon? There's no balloon. You might be thinking of five weeks in a balloon, also by Jules Verne. Oh, there was a balloon in the movie, I'm sure there was, and it was a hydrogen balloon. Okay, all this is because today we're talking to Gilbert and Tobin's special counsel, Jeff Peterson, about gas regulation, natural gas and a bit of hydrogen, at a time when we desperately need to use less fossil fuels. Maybe the AR is saying, well, if we're going to promote the long-term interests of consumers, it might not just be about efficiency. There might be other consumer objectives that we should be bearing in mind and balancing against that efficiency objective. For example, decarbonisation. We'll hear more about that in just a minute. But Matt, why did you tell me last week that Around the World in 80 Days was an aviation novel? I admit it, okay. I don't speak French. Quel dommage. Just tell us what's happening autour du terrain. So ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Leib was able to announce a delicious win in her first week when the court handed Peter's ice cream a civil penalty of $12 million for exclusive dealing. This was mentioned in the ACCC's enforcement priorities for the year, wasn't it? A focus on exclusive arrangements. That's right. And in this case, Peter's distributed its single-serve ice cream products to service stations and convenience stores through PFD Food Services on the condition that PFD wouldn't distribute any competing products. Is this the PFD that was just bought by Woolworths? Yeah, Woolies took a majority stake in 2021, and the ACCC let that go ahead after finding there were enough other distributors around. But in the Peters case, it found that for smaller players, or new entrants in particular, and they gave the example of Buller, really the only way for them to get to Servos or 7-Elevens was through PFD. And now, of course, they couldn't because of those exclusive arrangements. This is an interesting one. Because Rod Sims said he preferred to regulate structures to avoid the need to regulate conduct as much, hence those new merger rules that he proposed. But it looks like the opposite is happening here, doesn't it? A bit, yeah. Here they let the merger through, but they intervened on the conduct. And the action that they took was against Peters, of course, and not PFD. But it all got a bit tangled together, and it was all happening at the same time. There was even some concern that submissions to the merger review might be shown to PFD as part of the court case, which could have been awkward. Though in the end, they only went to the lawyers on both sides. This is all very interesting, but why can't you buy a Golden North ice cream from Zoos in South Australia anymore? Yeah, I saw that too. In that situation, Zoos South Australia put out a tender for the supply of ice cream products at their two zoos, and Peter's won at fair and square, according to the zoo people. So in that case, there wasn't in fact a chilling of competition. Oh, very good. Well, all this shows that the Commission is prepared to take the Sam Kerr approach to ice cream makers. Uh, What's that exactly? Suck on that one. (laughs) I'm getting an ice cream headache here. What was your favourite ice cream, Matt? Well, I did get a bit of deja vu when I was reading about the product market here. I feel like ice creams have become a bit homogenised over the years. We had some pretty wild flavours back when I was eating a lot of ice cream. Like what? Well, there was the Sunny Boy, of course, which you can't get anymore. Mm -hmm. Bubble Bill, which is still around. Then there's the Sunny Bill. Oh, hang on. (laughs) That's not an ice cream. Nice try. (laughs) Garfield Hunger Buster. That cannot be right. It is right. The Agro's Mega Munch. The what? The Hawaiian Delight. Um, very popular in, in bushfire season. Oh, dear. And the Snowy Hydro. Well, I thought I heard that described as a $10 billion white elephant, not an ice cream. But anyway, we could do this all day. Is there any more competition news? Well, a couple of big mergers have recently been abandoned after regulators around the world said they were concerned about them. 
with some pretty substantial break fees changing hands as a result. The first one was when NVIDIA tried to buy ARM for $40 billion. Now, that was announced in September 2020 and called off in February this year. And for those who don't know their ARM from their NVIDIA? (laughs) Well, ARM designs the microchips that are used in almost every mobile device these days, and also a lot of laptops, desktops, and big servers. Now, the A used to stand for Acorn back in the 80s when they made the BBC Micro, which I think was the first computer I ever used. I'm afraid to ask about the other one. NVIDIA makes graphics cards for computers, which for a long time are mostly used to play video games, but now they're often used for AI and especially to create cryptocurrency, which uses a lot of the sort of computing power that these cards are built for. So basically, they're in the market for mining equipment, are they? Like Caterpillar or Komatsu? Yeah, pretty much. But regulators have been worried that NVIDIA could undercut rivals that depended on ARM technology, and the merger might stifle innovation in next-generation graphic technologies. The UK and European regulators opened in-depth or phase two merger reviews, and then the US went to court to block the merger. Well, that's pretty stiff opposition. Yeah, and it wasn't a complete surprise. There was a break fee of more than a billion dollars that NVIDIA had to pay if the deal didn't complete, including because it couldn't get merger clearance. We might see those kinds of fees go up now as regulators get more interested in these big tech deals. Definitely. And the regulators are getting more interested, especially in the US, where they had been seen as a bit laissez-faire, but now there's a new focus across the agencies, and their intervention has often made the difference. That's what happened in the merger between Cargo Tech and Connor Cranes, which is a fairly unusual one in that both companies have names that actually relate to what they do. Oh, so they handle cargo with cranes. Voila. But in that one, the regulators were split. The Europeans accepted undertakings to sell off some of the cranes, but the UK rejected the undertakings and the US threatened to sue again. And that was kind of the coup de grace in that merger. If we were still on ice creams, we could say it was a coup de grace. (laughs) La plume de matante. (laughs) Here, the ACCC put out a statement of issues with some preliminary concerns, but it hadn't yet decided on the undertakings when the deal was called off at the end of March this year. And what did ACCC Chair Gina Cascotlieb say? She said that the merger had been hanging in the balance. And? The undertakings were doing a lot of heavy lifting. So? They might have had to block and tackle it. And he's back! Thank you, Matt. (laughs) Now, before we move from the puns to the deep dive, let's get serious for a minute about the Ukraine. The European Competition Network has just issued a statement condemning Russia's military aggression and recognising that the usual competition law enforcement wouldn't apply to any cooperation that's needed to respond to the impact of the invasion or the sanctions. But that doesn't mean they'll put up with any companies taking advantage of the situation by forming cartels or abusing their dominant position. Sounds like the position they've taken in response to the pandemic and public health measures, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I guess it's good in one sense that competition law is developing a consistent way to deal with these terrible crises, though of course we'd rather they didn't have to. One investigation the European Commission is pressing ahead with is about whether Russian gas giant Gazprom has been withholding supplies in order to raise prices. And this whole situation is forcing countries around the world to look at who they rely on for energy and even to think about increasing their own extraction and generation. And that might be good for energy independence, but it's bad news according to the IPCC report that just came out, which says basically that we need to massively decarbonise the energy sector by 2030 and definitely not be investing in new fossil fuel generation. Yeah, it's a complicated and urgent issue. It sort of makes me wish that we had an energy expert on hand to help us sort through all these things. 
Well, as a matter of fact, I've just had a good old gas bag with Jeff Peterson about energy regulation and how it can respond to everything that's happening in the world, from climate change to war. Oh, let's take a listen. Today I'm joined by Special Counsel Jeff Peterson, who's famous in these parts not only for his nerdy knowledge of regulated industries, but also for his cross-disciplinary expertise. He's got first-class honours degrees in both law and economics, which is two more than me. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, William. Good to have you here. So today we're going to talk about challenges in gas pipelines and electricity network regulation. And that might sound a little dry and a little remote, perhaps, to people who aren't quite as nerdy as you on these topics. But tell us why it is very relevant to today's world. Gas market regulation and electricity market regulation is, of course, quite fundamental to uh, how we get our energy and the prices that we pay for our energy. But it's becoming more and more important as energy markets are increasingly in transition. The electricity market in particular going through a huge transition as we move away from fossil fuels and towards renewable sources. And that puts pressure on each stage of the supply chain. So not just generation, but also networks because the location and the mix of generation is changing and also retailers in how they procure their energy. So as we go through that transition, regulatory frameworks that we've had in place for a long time, which were really designed for a different type of energy market and a different mix of energy sources, they need to adapt as well. And if we turn our minds back to COP26, it really was front and centre of the world's consciousness, wasn't it, about the need to get ourselves off fossil fuels and to move to more sustainable sources of energy. Yeah, that's right. I think it has been, you know, happening for a while in Australia, this energy market transition. You know, we saw five or so years ago, large coal-fired generators starting to close and renewables coming into the system, a lot of rooftop solar, but also large-scale wind. So it has been happening, but, you know, COP26 has given it real momentum now, I think, not just among energy businesses who live and breathe the system every day, but now amongst politicians and, and the general public. And of course, events in the Ukraine, if anything, have made us more conscious of our reliance on fossil fuels and maybe accelerated the consciousness to move away from them as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Ukraine crisis, I think, has made some countries realise that energy security is very important, particularly European countries now realise how important their energy security is. Those sorts of events also have impacts on us in a less direct way. For example, our gas markets are now linked to international markets because we export a lot of our gas as as LNG. And so those sorts of global shocks, as they impact global LNG markets, will have an impact on pricing and supply in our domestic gas market. So while we're talking gas, just give us a little primer, if you would, on what kind of gas we're talking about and how it's used. Are we talking about what comes out of my stove at home when I turn it on or what I plug into my barbecue? Or is this big industrial gas that goes into a great big generator somewhere and turns into electricity? Just give us a primer on what kind of gas we're talking about here. So if I can start as a lawyer with the law, the the law defines natural gas as something that is in a gaseous state, obviously, and comprised of hydrocarbons. Principally methane usually is, is natural gas. And it's naturally occurring in the sense that we can find it in the ground. And there are many large reserves of natural gas around Australia. There's, there's a very large reserve in the middle of Australia around Moomba, the Cooper Basin. There have been historically large reserves down off Victoria in the Gippsland Basin and Otway to a lesser extent. 
And we're also now finding gas coming out of Queensland, out of coal seams. So that's a slightly different way of extracting gas out of coal seams to the sort of conventional methods. But that gas can be sort of delivered into pipelines and to domestic and industrial users in essentially the same way as, as natural gas. Now, in terms of how it's used in Australia, the, the gas that is delivered to your house and to your stove is essentially the same gas that can be used by industrial users, manufacturers. And it's it's also the same gas that can be liquefied and turned into LNG for export. And about 70% these days of, of our domestically produced gas goes to exports as LNG. So the remaining 30% is used for residential and small business consumption, industrial consumption, and also for gas-fired power generation. At the moment, it's roughly sort of 45 industrial. That's the largest use of domestic gas, followed by residential consumption and and gas-fired power generation is sort of the smallest. So let's talk about how these assets are regulated, because traditionally the frameworks for economic regulation of energy networks and of pipelines were focused around efficient utilisation. So you'd have a very big asset that you didn't really want duplicated, but nor did you want people to be gouged with monopoly pricing because of that asset. So the assets would be price regulated and it would be done on the basis that it was an efficient use, generally mean putting as many units as possible through that asset so that the unit price comes down. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and that reflects the history really of gas pipeline regulation in Australia. So that those regulatory frameworks that we continue to use today, although in a somewhat updated form, those frameworks came out of the competition policy reforms in the 1990s. Post-Hilma, we had the, the gas code initially found form in the national gas law and the gas rules eventually. And those frameworks, as you say, were really designed to ensure that monopoly assets were used efficiently and there was efficient investment in those assets and that ultimately consumers didn't pay too much for their use of those assets. So it's priced so that we'll use a lot of it or that we'll use that asset a lot. What happens now when we're in a world of decarbonisation? The objectives of the current regulatory framework are very much framed around efficient utilisation of the existing asset, which in one sense means more use of those assets. Yes. Because if you have a, you know, a large fixed cost asset and you use it more, you'll bring down the unit cost and bring down prices for consumers. So a lot of regulatory design has been sort of framed with that objective in mind. But now we come to a point where we're asking ourselves perhaps more use of gas and gas infrastructure is not necessarily a good thing. And the AER actually is asking itself that very question. It put out a paper late last year where it talked about conflicting policy objectives between the National Gas Regulatory Framework and and sort of broader decarbonisation objectives. And the AER looked at the National Gas Objective, which talks about efficient utilisation as well as efficient investment, and asked itself, well, is that objective really fit for purpose or is it actually in conflict with decarbonisation objectives? That's a pretty existential question for a regulator to be asking itself and doing so publicly. I mean, you, you don't often read statements by regulators that are that questioning of their master's rules. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in one sense, it may be that the AR is looking for a little more 
flexibility, actually, in, in how it does its job. At the moment, the objective of the gas law is telling the AAR to promote the long-term interests of consumers, but do that by promoting efficient use of investment in and operation of the gas as- assets. And maybe the AAR is saying, well, if we're going to promote the long-term interests of consumers, it might not just be about efficiency. There might be other consumer objectives that we should be bearing in mind and balancing against that efficiency objective. For example, decarbonisation. So what sort of options are there at a policy level to reframe those objectives? Well, I suppose one option would be to simply strip back the objective and say the objective is to promote the long-term interests of consumers, full stop. And you go figure it out. You can do whatever you feel you need to do to promote those interests. That's right. And, and you sort of leave it up to the regulator to decide what do I think are the objectives or the interests of consumers. To broaden it beyond economic efficiency. It sounds a little hipster, doesn't it? It, it is a little hipster. It's, it's saying this regulatory framework is not just an instrument of economics. It's not just about economic efficiency. I should be looking beyond efficiency and and looking at other interests of the community. And it's up to me as the regulator to, to balance those potentially competing objectives. Well, it's an interesting debate, isn't it? Whether broader social objectives can be captured in the economic definition of consumer interests or whether they fall outside that. I mean, do economists risk isolating themselves a little bit from the real worlds if they don't acknowledge the broader social implications of these uh, economic definitions around efficiency, etc. I mean, you look out the window, we've got floods and fires and things that are connected to climate change issues. And they're having a huge cost, huge economic cost for the country. Well, I suppose there is a risk if if economists take a too sort of blinkered view of what is in the interests of the economy and society. And to the extent they take a very short term view of economic efficiency, then perhaps, yes, there is a real risk that you, you don't properly take into account the long term interests. Now, there's always going to be a difficulty for economists and policymakers and regulators in trying to weigh up the immediate short-term interests of the community, let's say lower prices. A lower bill, a lower electricity bill uh, or a lower gas bill. Weighing that against the interests of future generations. It's not so future, though, when people are being washed away in floods and uh, houses being burnt down in fires because of climate change issues, though. I mean, I know there are some people who would be sceptical about that proposition, but putting that aside for a minute, these things are not so long-term anymore. That's right. And and perhaps as those sorts of events unfortunately become more common, we may see regulators and also consumer groups who advocate to regulators becoming more conscious of the effect of those sorts of events on the community and, and saying to the regulator, hey, you need to be taking this into account in your assessment of the long-term interests of consumers because it is no longer just sort of some future possibility or future risk. It's a real and, and present risk. So talk to me about the perspective of the asset owners now. I mean, if you own one of these long-term capital-intensive assets, probably you're expecting it to be around for 30, 40, 50 years. You have a regulated rate of return. You might have shareholders who are maybe your super fund and my super fund who are wanting to look forward at at a return in 20 or 30 years. So those sorts of long-term returns, how does an asset owner deal with that conundrum? What are their options? 
I suppose from the perspective of the asset owner, many of those owners have invested on the basis of a certain expectation about how they'll be regulated. And the way regulation has been administered in the past has been on on the expectation, as you say, Moya, that, that these assets will be around for a long time. They'll be around for 40, 50 years, let's say, and that the asset owners will have some certainty that they'll recover the cost of their investment over that time frame. And the quid pro quo is that if you have that expectation or that some degree of certainty around that, then you'll accept a lower rate of return. So that's been, in a sense, the sort of regulatory compact. And for assets that are partway through their life, those owners will have been accepting a low rate of return on those assets because of the revenue stability that they have expected to go for another 20 or 30 years. That's right. And I guess where regulators are now starting to scratch their heads and as the AR is in that paper, they're starting to ask themselves, well, what happens if that expectation changes and it's no longer expected that the asset will be around for 20, 30 years? It's like changing the rules at half time, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Or I think switching horses midstream is is an expression I've heard somewhere. And if you switch horses midstream, what, what happens to your rates of return and your ability to recover costs in that last 10 to 20 years? Now, one option, of course, is to just say, well, bad luck. That was always a risk and you have to wear that. Another option is to perhaps truncate the asset life and say, well, we thought it was 20 years, but it's now 10 years. So you get to recover your capital over 10 years, not 20 years. Now, the implication of that, of course, is that prices go up. If you halve the remaining asset life, you're going to double the the annual depreciation charge. Another option, again, would be to say, bad luck, but we're going to increase your rate of return to reflect the now increased risk. But again, that, that will have price implications. So there are no easy solutions here. The AR, to their credit, is, is canvassing all options, I think, in, in this discussion paper, but not at the moment settling on any particular solution. At the moment, it seems like all, all options are on the table. Well, it's important that they have raised it and have raised it very publicly and I guess generated a debate in Australia, which is overdue. Yeah, that's right. Let me ask you about hydrogen, Jeff, because we've heard a bit of excitement about the possibilities in hydrogen. I understand there are various colours of hydrogen, so maybe you could explain that to me. And also whether there's any chance that it could replace coal as an electricity generator. Yeah, so there is a lot of excitement around hydrogen because it can be used as a as a fuel source and an energy source, effectively replacing fossil fuels. The sort of problem that it faces at the moment is it's very high cost to produce hydrogen. And depending on how you produce the hydrogen, that can have implications for whether it's truly green or, or not. If it's produced using renewable energy, then it's green. But if it's produced using fossil fuel sources, then obviously it's, it's not so green. And that's where you get into sort of the blues and browns and, and the other colours of hydrogen. But there appear to be great prospects and Alan Finkel's very excited about it, among others. It, it does have the potential to provide an alternative use for um, for those gas pipes. For existing pipeline infrastructure. Yes. It, again, that's a sort of a, a slightly more uncertain and longer term prospect. It may be that there need to be significant sort of augmentations to those pipelines to be able to carry hydrogen. A- at the moment, it's thought that perhaps the steel pipelines at least may not be able to carry hydrogen, at least not without some reinforcement or augmentation because the hydrogen, unlike the, so the existing natural gases, can corrode the, the steel very quickly. So that is all to say that while hydrogen is a great prospect in terms of the energy transition because it can aid the, the transition to renewable fuels and away from uh, fossil fuels, there is still quite a lot of uncertainty around the technology, how it can be made cost-effective 
and how existing infrastructure can be used to facilitate transport and, and use of hydrogen in, for example, energy generation. And one of the issues that's been flagged actually by the AR in, in that same paper is, is that, is that hydrogen unlike natural gas can be quite corrosive to to existing steel pipelines. So while there is a potential use for the existing pipelines to transport hydrogen, they may need to be either upgraded, reinforced, or possibly even replaced. Because um, they go rusty. Because they become very brittle and, and go rusty if you use them to transport hydrogen. So the consequence of that is that while there may be a, a future use for existing pipelines repurposed to transport hydrogen, it's quite uncertain. And that all sort of goes to the question of, well, does the existing regulatory compact still continue to apply or do we need to think about revisiting that regulatory compact? Well, I think there's no doubt that the energy situation we find ourselves in and the climate change situation that we find ourselves in was not fully contemplated by the regimes that we've got. So the question is now, how will that be addressed? And that's something that will keep policymakers, I expect, economists and probably a few lawyers busy over the coming months and years. Yeah. And the question in my mind, Moya, is, is whether that will be a continuing evolution of our regulatory frameworks, because there have been sort of amendments made, many amendments made to those regulatory frameworks over the years, mostly incremental changes, or, or whether there'll be something more like a, a regulatory revolution. So with all of this uncertainty, Jeff, should I go buy myself some rooftop solar? If I was... That's not a request for legal advice, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to caveat that with, I'm not giving you advice, but at my place, I'm actually thinking about rooftop solar plus storage. The cost of storage at the moment is relatively high. It has been coming down. Many people just have the rooftop solar and feed into the grid, but some people are going for the solar plus storage option. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jeff Peterson, Special Counsel at Gilbert and Tobin. Thanks for that summary of decarbonisation and the regulatory environment. My pleasure, Maya. Thank you. What a great interview. And when you were talking about rooftop solar and storage, I was just reading that one future solution would be to use your electric vehicle for storage because they've got these really big batteries in them hmm. and you could charge them up using solar or renewable sources whenever they're parked and Use them to either power your home or to feed back into the grid. Well, good if you have off-street parking. Yeah, true. And that is an issue for electric cars in a lot of places. I suppose there'll have to be a fair bit of new infrastructure to make it all work, as well as some pretty smart regulation. And the latest IPCC report says that electrifying land transport has got to be a key part of any solution. So tell me all of that is taken care of in the recent federal budget, Matt. Well, not explicitly, but Mm. uh, maybe next time. Mm. Is that in your crystal ball? It'll have to do, I think. Oh, thanks, Matt. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes. And we've got some great guests still to come this season, including Elizabeth Avery and Luke Woodward on the ACCC's enforcement priorities and Dr. Catherine Kemp on the clash between competition law and privacy. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Au revoir.